Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. What really is normal when it comes to health? How is our society breeding disease? Is there a clear pathway to health and healing? Well, joining me today is acclaimed author and renowned physician, Dr. Gabor Mate, to discuss this and so much more. We dive into and unpack his new book, The Myth of Normal, where we dissect why chronic illnesses are on the rise, and we untangle so many common myths about what makes us sick. Gabor does a great job in connecting the dots between the maladies of an individual and the declining soundness of society, and how we really do need to deal with the impact of our childhoods on how we show up as adults. This episode will make you question so many assumptions and think deeply about who you are and how you can live more freely and fully. So let's begin. Looking for a scientifically tested and strategic way to improve your mental health? Then it's time for you to download my new app, NeuroCycle, the world's first and only mind-brain detox app. NeuroCycle is a step-by-step program you do over 63 days to identify and unwire toxic thinking habits, trauma, and limiting beliefs. The app doesn't just help you remove the bad stuff, but also helps rebuild healthy new neural networks into your brain. NeuroCycle also includes many guides for in-the-moment situations, like a guide to help you work through panic attacks and a guide for parents to use with kids. Struggling with sleep? NeuroCycle has a guide to help you fall asleep quicker and stay asleep longer. I spent over 30 plus years developing and testing this NeuroCycle system and use it with my patients who struggled with anxiety, depression, brain injury recovery, and so many other things. It's used by over 500,000 people worldwide, including world-class athletes, pastors, and celebrities. To get started today, just look for NeuroCycle in the App Store or Google Play or visit NeuroCycle.app. The link and details will also be in the show notes. Dr. Gabor Marte, this is a privilege, an honor, a delight, and a dream to interview you. Your work has impacted millions and impacted mine so greatly, and I cannot tell you how privileged I am to be interviewing you today and to talk about things that are so close to my heart that I've researched for over three decades, three and a half decades, to have someone like you in front of me to discuss these really important topics is a tremendous honor. Thank you for who you are, the work you do, and for joining us today. Well, that's quite the introduction. Thank you very much. What a pleasure and an honor. Well, I have in front of me your book, your latest book, which congratulations hit the New York Times bestseller. And I'm not, I'm not at all surprised. The myth of normal, and I mean, just the title is so captivating. So, I would, I have so many angles that I want to go down because we talk about so much of the same kind of thing. You, I'd love you to start with your backstory. Just you know, you, you start where you where you come from, what your past is, a little bit of that, and how your story starts with you landing at the airport. So you can take that from wherever you want with your, your because it launches us into this whole concept we're going to be discussing today. Well, I'll begin with the airport story and then track back to my infancy and really highlight how our responses to life are so much programmed by our past and the way our mind interprets events. So we tend to react not to what happens, but to our perception of what happens. And those perceptions are conditioned so much by our our past and even the past of previous generations. So this is, you have to understand, this is when I was young and stupid at age 71, eight years ago. And I arrived back to Vancouver, British Columbia, where we live. 
after a speaking trip to the States, it was a successful trip, a good flight. And when I land, I get a text from my wife who had promised to be at the airport to pick me up. And the text says, I haven't left home yet. Do you still want me to come? And my response is to go into a deeply hurt state and and actually a, a rage. And when I take the taxi home and, and I walk into her house, I barely even look at her. And I keep that up for 24 hours. So she finally says, knock it off already. And so I did. But now, of course, what was I so upset about? I've only known for multiple decades that my wife, when she's an, she's an artist and she's in a studio and she's painting, she forgets everything, you know? So that's all that happened. But what happened, of course, is that an implicit memory of abandonment got triggered in my brain, in my mind. Because I was 11 months old, as a Jewish infant in Budapest, Hungary, my mother gave me to a total stranger in the street to save my life. And I could I didn't see her for six weeks or five weeks. And after I did see her, I didn't look at her for days. And that's what young children do, separated from their parents. On reunion, the child's brain says, the child's mind says, you were so hurt by that abandonment that you will not make yourself that vulnerable again. So there's this avoidance, withdrawal, reaction. Now, clearly I wasn't reacting to my wife in the present moment. I was reacting to my brain's automatic unconscious interpretation of her not showing up as an abandonment, and I was reacting like a one-year-old baby. And that's the impact of trauma, is that we have trouble being in the present. We're actually reliving the past without intending to. And this shows the power of the mind, that it the, the mind imposes its interpretation even on the most benign events. And, his own, and those interpretations tend to be conditioned by the most painful experiences that we've had. Now, you've had some very painful experiences growing up through the... I don't want to give people your story. Can you tell just a little bit more about the... And what you, you know, where you, what your background, you're a physician, but you also went through the Holocaust. And I don't, would you, would you mind talking just a little bit about that so people well, have that context? Sure. Well, so as an infant, I survived the genocide. Um, Hungary was occupied by the Germans two months after I was born. And that was the last country where the Jewish population was still intact. And within three months, the Germans exterminated half a million Hungarian Jews, including my grandparents in Auschwitz. My father was in forced labor. My mother and I lived under the Nazi occupation under frequent threat threat of death ourselves and certainly urine disease and so on. So I don't need to dwell more on that, but you know, these are the circumstances that yeah. shape my early responses to the world. And for example, I was diagnosed in my mid fifties with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And it fit, you know. And, you know, the medical mantra is that this is this genetic disease. No, it isn't. I knew immediately that it wasn't, despite the fact that two of my kids are diagnosed, because the tuning out is not a disease. It's a coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism that the brain invokes when the circumstances are stressful and there's no escape and there's no altering the situation. So there I am as a infant under those dire circumstances my mother is stressed and terrorized i'm picking up on her stress mm -hmm. what do i do with that i tune out but when am i tuning out when my brain is developing so the tuning is tuning out gets programmed into the brain 
And then they tell you, you got this genetic disease. Well, you don't. And if you actually look at, I know that mental health is a real concern of yours, particularly yeah. amongst children. And, and when you look at the number of kids, the vastly increasing number of kids being diagnosed with that condition mm-hmm. and others and being medicated, what's really going on is not some kind of genetic epidemic, which is not even theoretically exactly. possible. What's exactly. going on is that the pending environment has become so stressed that it's actually in this culture that it's actually affecting the developing brains of infants and young children in negative ways, which then means that they're, they're diagnosed with this or that medical disorder where all that's happening is that their development is being distorted by the environment. Thank you for sharing that. And you've transported me back to 1984 when I finished my first degree and, and a professor mentioned to it was in, in a lecture and he actually said, Gosh, the way things are going, I mean, this is a summary of a long series of lectures, but essentially the way things are going with helping children with learning disabilities and helping adults and helping people with all the autism, mental health challenges, dementias, he said it's going in the wrong direction. And he said, you mark my words, in 40 years time, it is going to be a pandemic out of proportion. And I mean, you know, the words stick in my brain. And here we are, and you talk about this in your book, that we're sitting 40 years later with a worse crisis than we had. You know, and you and you actually there's a quote I want to read from your book, and then I'd love you to to just talk about this. Let me get to the right page. This book is outstanding. Okay, so there's two two quotes. There's there's the first one I want to actually read is is in 1984 you quoted a journalist. Here we go. John Franklin the wrote that in 1984. This is this is the just to set the stage. Psychiatry today stands on the threshold of becoming an exact science, as precise and quantable as molecular genetics. And here we are, that was in 1984, so it really caught my attention because that, exact, that exactly was the message that I was receiving, but fortunately I'd had a little bit of an alternative message from my professors, yeah. which encouraged me to do my master's and PhD in the area of gone, mm. gone in these directions. And then you say a beautiful explanation of this. You say that as with the ultimately unfulfilled promise of the genomic revolution, to explain health and illness, the initial enthusiasm for the prospect of science-based psychiatry was virtually unbounded. And nearly 40 years later, we are no closer to crossing this imagined threshold. If anything, we are further away. And I mean, yeah. there's a million things I can read from your book because every line is filled with wisdom. It just mm. is so true. Would you mind just talking a little bit to that based on the example that you gave? Yeah, so there was this belief, just as when <clears throat> the human genome was discovered or, or, you know, decoded. And then President Bill Clinton makes the speech that we've now found the language in which life is written. And now we're going to have all these treatments and preventions for cancer and Alzheimer's and everything else. Nothing was closer to the truth. Because what the president didn't know, nor did it seem his medical advisors, (laughs) is that genes are turned on and off by the environment. So just because you have an alphabet, it doesn't mean you have the plays of Shakespeare. You know, exactly. it still takes <laughs> a whole lot of process to make an ordinary alphabet into a Shakespearean play. In the same way, it, it takes a whole lot of environmental influences to affect how genes function and how they don't. Now, going back to the psychiatric issue, there was the same belief that once we discover the biology of mental illness and and the biological markers, just as we have biological markers for rheumatoid arthritis or cancer, we'll find the biological markers for mental illness and then we'll be able to provide biological cures. That was never true. And 
it's shown not to be true because actually the more research there is the the further away further away we are from actually discovering any biological basis to mental illness as such and partly that was a scientific hubris arrogance but it was something else as well because psychology freudian psychology had made lots of mistakes but at least it understood that the mm -hmm. unconscious governs a lot of our behavior exactly and so freudian psychology was directed towards uncovering or unveiling that unconscious it wasn't very good at it but it made a lot of false assumptions yeah but at least they were digging in the right mind now then in the 1950s or so we discovered these psychiatric medications that all of a sudden can make a dramatic difference to people's depression and so on well that opened this door to all this biological research but something else happened what happened was that the psychiatric profession realized that if things are biological to be affected by medications and since as doctors they're the only ones that could prescribe medications now they have a monopoly on treatment it's a way of displacing psychology so it was a deliberate push on the part of the american psychiatric organizations to establish a biological view of things because that would give them the power and an advantage over psychologists who couldn't prescribe medications mm -hmm. the long and short of it is that there's no evidence whatsoever that any mental health conditions is caused by any gene there's no gene that if you have it you'll have a mental illness that if you don't have it you won't there's no group of genes that if you have it you'll have a certain mental illness whether it's adhd or psychosis there's no group of genes that if you don't have it you can't have those conditions the most they've discovered is that there might be a large group of amorphous group of genes the more of them you have the more likely you are to have any number of mental health conditions which means that these genes are not for mental illness at all they are for people's susceptibility to the, the environment and, wow. the more, and the more susceptible you the inner word sensitivity there was a study i think it was in new zealand or australia they looked at aggression in a population they found that if you had a certain gene variation you were more aggressive than others or less aggressive than others so same gene either more aggressive or less aggressive but the gene could not have been for aggressivity we know what it was for sensitivity and those kids exactly. that were well treated they became less aggressive those that came from dysfunctional homes became more aggressive because the more sensitive you are the greater impact the environment has and all these kids being diagnosed these days most of them are the sensitive canary in the mind kids who are being affected by the stresses in their environment and their brain development is affected this begins already in the uterus and so that what we have here is an epidemic of stress that's causing an epidemic of mental health challenges amongst kids in the new york times five months ago had a front page article mm -hmm. this kid was teenager was in eight to ten different psychiatric medications mm -hmm. They should maybe be on one if at all but eight or ten medications mm -hmm. that's a complete mm -hmm. bankruptcy of psychiatry of the system yeah of the system yeah yeah it's it's heartbreaking and thank goodness more and more people are talking about this and so just so that people understand this disease model does not solve problems because it isolates the individual and you very much all about the environment 
And the, all the research, even quantum physics talks about the fact that it's not about you, it's about you and your environment. Epigenomes mm-hmm. are the things that make the genes work. So this whole thing of taking a person out of the environment and isolating it to some neurobiological underlying deficit as per diagnosis implication is not a reality. And it takes away people's hope. You comment in your book about how that initially might be comforting for the person but it's not the solution. I always talk about it as an empty gift. Initially seems like a great gift, but it's actually an empty gift because then what? Can you talk well, a little bit about that and the hope and how we should be looking at the impact sure. of the environment and how we're having a normal response to abnormal situations? Well, taking in my favorite example, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, ADHD. By the way, I'm proud to tell you that that's the first book I wrote 24 years ago. Yes, it's scattered minds. It's just been republished in the states, and last and next week it'll be number ten in the New York Times. I saw that this morning on your paper, inst- paperback list. You know, unbelievable. A twenty-four-year-old book. Now, well here's done. The thing. Congratulations! So, I saw that this morning. Thank you. I'm shows you. Very happy to boast about it. But in any case, and you know, when I first published it, nobody paid attention. I thought, <laughs> oh my god, why don't why don't they see reality? You know, I had this naive idea that people just need to see the truth and they're, they're all going to say yeah this is fantastic well it took 24 years in any yeah. case so the, these diagnoses they don't explain anything so gabor has adhd how do we know because he's got difficulty being still he tunes out a lot and he's got poor impulse control okay well why does he have poor impulse control difficulty being still and tune out a lot because he's got adhd how do we know he's got adhd because he's got difficulty sitting still and he's got poor impulse control and tunes out a lot. It's circular. You know, mm-hmm. Caroline maybe has depression. How do we know she has depression? Because she has a low mood and she socially isolates and mm, she's got negative moods. Why does she have negative moods and et cetera? Because she's got depression. So these it's diagnoses, tautology. They, it's a complete tautology. They don't explain anything. They describe things. And that may be helpful to describe thing, something. But for explanations, now that's the first thing that medicine does, is it confuses this descriptions with explanations. The second thing they do in medicine, this is true in whether we're talking about illness of the body and, or mind, they separate the separate organ from the individual. So depression, ADHD, they're diseases of the brain, you know? And, well, no, that's not what actually happens. They're not diseases of the brain. They're processes that affect the brain, but the processes involve the person's entire life from in utero onwards. We know already that stresses on pregnant women can affect the future mental health of their children in biological ways. In other words, the biology is actually affected and shaped and influenced by our, our psychological experiences, our emotional connections, and our social circumstances. Now, let me take a segue here for a minute. There was an article I just read this morning in last Sunday's New York Times about black people giving birth to the United States. Rich black women have worse outcomes than rich than poor white women in terms of wow. birth, and their babies are more likely to die. It's got nothing to do with social. It's got no social status. Does make a difference. Rich mm-hmm. white people do better than poor white people, but racism itself is a mm-hmm. is a factor. There was a study recently, just a few weeks ago, 
that in the, in the aftermath of an episode of racism, there's more inflammation in a person's body. Mm -hmm. And studies have shown already that previously that the more experiences of racism a black woman experiences, the greater her risk for asthma, which involves an inflammation of her airways. In other words, to wow. separate the to separate the no, which begs the question: Is her asthma the disease of some discrete organ, her airways, or is it a social malaise? You can't separate the two yeah. because the the mind affects the body. And the mind is affected by our social relationships, by our whole culture. In other words, the only way to, and then if you look at, well, why in Canada, in my country, does an indigenous woman have six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis, where the indigenous population used to have no rheumatoid arthritis wow. at all? Why? Because you can't separate the mind from the body, and you can't separate the individual from the environment. So the only way you can understand illness, most illnesses, there's some rare exceptions, mm -hmm. but the only way you can understand illness is by looking at the entire environment in which an individual grows up. And that includes the culture and the multi-generational family history as it impacts the developing individual. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are, you, I know you're retired, but you're a practicing physician for years. And you talk, even in the book, you comment on how a medical student and physicians and psychiatrists don't really get training in the mind. And your focus is looking at the person in the environment. And you talk about the mind as being a priority, like the first cause. And it's, it, you, know, you know, when I read that about your work, I think, wow, finally I'm justified in saying what I've saying. I've been saying that for so long. And, to, 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 and you practicing, you seeing this, you saw this for years in your practice. You quote, and I want to get the page here, you quote Buddha. And I just thought this was a phenomenal quote. If I may read it on page 365, everything has mind in the lead. His mind in the forefront is made by the mind. And yeah. I mean, that's just, you, you go on to say a whole bunch of other incredible things. We can do nothing about the world that created our mind, the world that created our mind that may have instilled in us limiting, harmful, untrue beliefs about ourselves and others. However, here's the good news. We can learn to be responsible for the mind which, with which we create our world moving forward. The capacity to heal is born of the willingness to do just that. And it's a moment by moment thing, not a, you know, and you just say so many incredible things. And I want to read one more thing and then just hand it over to you. You say the essential shift transpired when you give some stories of your, of your patients and, and stories of people and your own experiences. But you make a comment here that's very powerful. The essential shift transpired not in people's circumstances or histories, which we've got to acknowledge it's their story, but in how they related to them. So yes. I understand your work as being in the, we, we cannot separate the person from the world. The world impacts the person. So via the experience, via mind, into brain and body, and then feeding back. And this is an on, it's a cyclic route. Okay. So that's how I understand your work because that's how I understand my work. And what you've said so clearly here is that the experiences are on a continuum. You talk about continuums as well of, of trauma, which I'd love you to address. But you talk about the fact 
that it's the traumas happen. They're on a continuum, but it's what we do, our reaction to them. That's where the real trauma lies. There's the traumatic experience, but it's how we deal with that. And so, and mind drives the process. Okay, so I've laid the foundation, set you up. Now, take it from here because I know there's a lot you could say about this. And you can sure. link it back to where the ADHD, psychiatry, your own experiences, wherever this leads you. Well, but to go back to something we've already touched upon, so my arrival at the airport. So now as an infant, as an 11-month-old, by the way, Caroline, I, a few months ago in Budapest, I stood at the very spot on the very paved stones where my mother gave me to the stranger. The building is still there. Wow. I've been to Budapest, by the way. Yeah. So that, but for you to oh. go there to... That's amazing. So you've been there. Yeah. You've been to that spot of, of pain. Yeah, but right to the very spot. Well, as an 11-month-old, what's really going on is that a 24-year-old young woman is making the greatest possible sacrifice she could out of a deep love for her infant mm. that she gives to a stranger and doesn't know if she'll ever see him again. Can you imagine? It's yeah, an act of... So it's dramatic. an act of... It's an act of incredible love on her part, an act of love on the part of the Christian woman who took me from her, mm-hmm. act of love on the part of the universe who saved my life that way. Exactly. That's the reality. As I understood many decades later during a psychedelic mm-hmm. ceremony in mm-hmm. Hungary. But what does the 11 month old do with it at the time? I'm being abandoned. It's the only way he can interpret it. And who gets abandoned? Somebody who's not worthy. So the trauma, which means the wound, the the wound is not that I was given to a stranger. The wound is I'm being abandoned because I'm not worthy. Now that belief that I'm being abandoned then shows up seven years later at the airport. And that belief that I'm not worthy makes me a workaholic medical doctor where I have to keep justifying my existence, proving my value, and having people like me and want me because, of course, that temporarily uh, counters the message that I'm useless, you know? And so that with that mind, which the world created through no fault of my own, that mind then, that wounded mind then runs my life until Mm. I heal, until I realize, no, it's not like that at all. First of all, I'm not unworthy. Nobody is, you know? And, Secondly, what happened to me was actually an act of grace, not an abandonment. Now, once I see that, I live in a completely different world. Wow. Reconceptualized. Yeah. yeah reconceptualized. And, and you know, I quote Joseph Chilton Pierce in his book, who says, a change of worldview changes the world viewed. Incredible quote. Yeah. And which is how it is for all of us. Unfortunately, yeah. in this culture... This culture does so much to keep us unconscious, to keep us escaping from our true experience, to actually distance ourselves from ourselves. I mean, look, you're you're in Texas. I know the Dallas Cowboys didn't make it into the Super Bowl this year, but you know there was a Super Bowl about a week ago or so. You know, no, just well, yeah, recently. Yeah. Now, okay, it's a wonderful game. But look at the importance it has in people's lives. It's actually importance in people's lives has nothing to do with with genuine significance. Nobody's life is going to be one stage different because the Chiefs scored three more points than the Eagles. It's Mm -hmm. irrelevant. 
you know. So while mm-hmm. it's a good game and you know certainly enjoyable, the importance and yet the things that are really important that affect people's lives, people don't know how to relate to them. It's easier to focus. Mm-hmm. And so this culture reinforces this unconsciousness where we don't really confront what's really going on. We try and divert ourselves because mm-hmm. it's just too complicated and painful and difficult. Or so we tell ourselves, you know. And so mm-hmm. those are the minds with which we then live in the world. Many people live in a world where it really makes a big difference who wins a football game. Mm-hmm. That's the world they live in. And it throws them into a tailspin. Yeah. 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 So, by the way, Nietzsche, the great German Mm -hmm. philosopher, writer, said about Buddha that he was the greatest of physiologists. He didn't say he was the greatest philosopher or psychologist. He said he was the greatest physiologist. Because Nietzsche understood that when the Buddha talks about the mind, he's actually talking about the body as well. Exactly. which Which is what modern science has shown that mind and body can't be separated, but medical practice doesn't realize what science has already demonstrated. So that my knock on my profession is that we don't follow the science. We actually have an ideology that separates things that should not be separated. Mm. And that's where the problem comes in because we all, every, every specialist, every person who's doing something, whatever you're doing, is we're all working together in the community and the community aspect yeah. goes. So you, in terms of just, I mean, that's a broad statement, but coming back to your comment about you've seen this in your in your work, you've seen this with patients, you've seen that you can't just say that that's the symptom and treat the symptom. And it doesn't mean that you're not paying attention to the symptom. It's yeah. it's it's obviously affecting the person. You want to give them a sense of, of you know, relieve the pain physically if it's an, an illness and mentally if it's that mental pain. So, so by saying it's a disease actually takes away a massive part of the honor of the person's story versus the just saying, oh, it's a disease, it's this and it's, you know, that's it's something wrong with your brain. That doesn't help a person long term. It, it makes things worse. And we know that from the research. We know where we're sitting today with 40 years yeah. later where that philosophy's really messed things up. You know, and the, yeah. and the whole, as you gave the example of ADD and ADHD as well, that doesn't help. So and some of the research work, the work I've done, we've been looking directly at when someone manages their mind feel in terms of like recognizing their story and working through it and giving themselves a permission to be a mess and, and experience and process and reconceptualize. Like you said, we see immediate changes in information, like literally in, in, in days and and weeks and changes in brain physiology, but those are the responses. But we in a world that's looking at the external or the physical responses and saying that that's the source, but the source is in the story. And you talk about that beautifully throughout the book in terms of trauma. Can you talk about the the continuum idea and a little bit more, maybe we can talk a little bit more about children and parenting. There's a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about some of the things around children, but let's talk about a little bit more about trauma and how we should be a more trauma-informed society because there's quite a lot of debates around that. And, you know, people say, if you say that, then you overlook someone who's really gone through something huge. But you talk about trauma on a continuum. So could well, we transition they, uh, to that? They used to debate whether the earth was round or flat as well, you know, but <laughs> yeah. the, the fact that there's a debate, there's a debate uh, sometimes only shows how backward our thinking is. It doesn't speak to the merits of the situation. It speaks to the lack of awareness of the people engaging in the debate, you know. Very uh, good point. Uh, when, when, when you were speaking just now, I was reminded of a young man I know who had a very severe stutter. 
he was convinced that he had something neurological wrong with him and he had speech pathologists working with him when he was mm -hmm. a teenager they were all about the mechanics of speech but i knew this family and i saw this young man as a adolescent just before adolescence undergo some trauma and i knew that his speech impediment was not some fixed biological entity expressing itself but it was his trauma response now he is a very well-known broadcaster who speaks totally articulately and without hesitation because he's dealt with his trauma you know the blockage he found mm -hmm. his voice in other words you know and it's just one of so many examples i could tell you you know when we focus on the mechanics and the strict biology rather than looking at the whole person in the environment trauma as i said earlier the meaning is literally a wound it's it's a greek word for wound or wounding so trauma is a psychological wound that hasn't healed and therefore affects us in our behavior our physiology and our psychology until we come to terms with it and it can show up in the form of mental health conditions like we've already talked about or mm -hmm. it can show up in the form of physical illness and there's a lot of research well first of all there's my observation as a family physician and then working in palliative care with dying people and then working with severely addicted people that all of these conditions well I, I use the word all the vast majority of these conditions can be traced back to life experiences under traumatic circumstances and I say most of them because there are a few genetic diseases. There's one that runs in my family, muscular dystrophy. If you have the gene like my mother did, you'll have the disease. But those are very rare. Mm -hmm. Most chronic conditions, like autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, lupus, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, colitis, eczema, psoriasis, most chronic asthma, migraines, I could go on, endometriosis. These are related to life experiences and stress and trauma. And there's a lot of research on that. There was mm -hmm. a report out of Harvard three years ago that showed that a woman with severe post-traumatic stress disorder has doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. And the milder the symptoms of mm -hmm. the PTSD, the less the risk of ovarian cancer. Now, if that was the only study ever done, it should have sent it. It should have mm -hmm. sent every physician in North America and around mm -hmm. the world running to figure out what's the connection in mind and body. You go to the average gynecologist, this article was published in a major journal, they'll not have heard of it. It just bypasses their attention. Mm -hmm. They don't have the receptors for it. They don't know what to do with it. So they don't even understand it. You go to mm -hmm. a cardiologist, a rheumatologist, lots of studies that show no relationship between trauma and stress and rheumatoid arthritis. Lots yeah. of studies. Very established research. You know. You go to the average rheumatologist, they'll never ask you about stress or trauma in your life. They'll give you the medications. By the way, what medications will they give you? Steroids, which are stress hormones. And we never and we never ask ourselves, well, gosh, we're treating everything with stress hormones, whether it's psoriasis or eczema or asthma or colitis or Crohn's disease or 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 lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis. We're treating everything with stress hormones. Hmm, does stress maybe have something to do with this? We never ask ourselves that because in medical education, these links are never highlighted. The average mm -hmm. physician does not get a single lecture on trauma, despite all these established documented connections. So, 
you know, unfortunately, there's so much more we could do for people. Uh, we had a technical problem, a slight technical problem. Our new studio system crashed. So I apologize to all my viewers. It's now converted to just audio. We had, a, as I said, a frustration. As And as Gabor explained, this is not a trauma. This is a frustration. And how we react to it will make this traumatic or not now. It's not we, we are going to still hear the incredible wisdom of Gabor and in, in continuing this interview, but you'll only be able to hear it. But at least we can still get this incredible wisdom. So, Gabor, thank you for your patience. Technology is always a frustration, but at least you've managed to reconnect, and I appreciate you hanging in there. We were talking as we as our technology issue happened on our side. We were talking about the fact that physicians are just not trained between the mind-brain-body connection concept, even though this is such an established fact in literature and in the science and the research. It's the area that I research. I've been researching for years. I'm still doing current trials on this whole connection. And if this is so evident, if there's such a strong body of research and people even get given, as you said, stress hormones for things like rheumatoid arthritis and so on, we, we know that there's a connection, but somehow still people, are physicians and a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists are not always making that connection. That's yeah, so kind of where we ended off. So pick up on right. So here's the remarkable that, say, breast cancer in women, there was a physician 2,000 years ago, who made the connection between emotional states and breast cancer in Rome. His name was Galen. In 1870, there was a British surgeon called James Paget, who was considered a pioneer of modern medicine. There's still a disease of the breast called Paget's disease. Mm -hmm. He made the connection between women's emotional states and the outcome of breast cancer. Wow. Good. In 2022, the New York Times had this breathless article. New research shows this relationship between breast cancer and a woman's emotional state. This wasn't new research at all. It's been around for... James Padgett talked about it 150 years ago. All kinds of research has been done on it. I published it in this book. In 1870 or so, the first neurologist to describe multiple sclerosis, Jean-Martin Charcot, one of the modern pioneer, the pioneers of modern neurology, if it is considered the father of modern neurology, he made the point that multiple sclerosis is an outcome of stress. Lots of research since then has documented that. You go to a neurologist today with multiple sclerosis, nobody's going to ask you about stress or trauma. They're just going to give you medications. The great Canadian, American, British physician, Sir William Osler, one of the founding physicians at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, he said in the 1890s that rheumatoid arthritis was a disease driven by stress. Mm -hmm. He had no research, he just had his insight. Since then, there's been both familial and psychological and physiological research elegantly documenting the connection between trauma, stress, and rheumatoid arthritis. You were the average rheumatologist. Nobody's going to ask you about stresses or trauma or how you feel about yourself, which is really a shame. Because, because these aren't theoretical considerations. If people learn to understand what stresses trigger their illnesses and they can work to prevent those stresses, they can actually attain a significant amount of prevention and healing. And I've seen this over and over and over again. And yet, the average physician, just as you were saying, doesn't get a single lecture on this in all the years of medical training. And the average physician doesn't hear a single lecture on, for example, the relationship between 
childhood trauma and adult mental illness, despite the fact that, as one British psychologist pointed out, the links between childhood trauma and adversity and adult mental health challenges is has been strongly established scientifically as the link between smoking and lung cancer. Exactly. And the average doctor never hears a single lecture on this. It's it's right. it's hard for you, you know. People might people listening to this might think even this guy either this guy is crazy, or there's something terribly wrong. I'm telling you, there's something terribly, terribly wrong. wrong. And I can back yeah. you up. You're definitely not crazy. I've seen this in my own career, and this is and as you say, yeah. through our observations, two people's observation, but they, it's established in the literature. Yeah, and so my demand to my profession is simply, let's get scientific about this. Yeah. You know. Let's look at the science. And that means we would treat people very differently. It would mean that the, uh, the person is actually empowered to examine their own history and their own narrative and their own worldview and help to gain some agency over what happens to them rather than just being the passive recipient of health care. And look, as a Western-trained physician, I have the greatest admiration, respect, and appreciation, and even awe at the achievements of uh, Western science and Western medicine. So this is not a rejection. It's just a request that we broaden our perspective. That, you know, goes, to, that goes to changing the training of physicians. I've, I personally have trained a lot of physicians in over the years, and this is it's always been an astounding comment that they always make that we were we were told us about the mind, you yeah. know. So it's it's and that's that's kind of amazing. But yet, if you think of it, the ninety five percent of prescriptions for mental health issues are written by primary care physicians. So people's first port of call, they've been led to believe, hey, you don't feel good in your emotions, so therefore go to the doctor and get a pull. And so that, as you say, you're not knocking the Western society. You're not knocking the Western society's medical training. You are a medically trained physician. You you're making an appeal to the system. How do you think this could be addressed that physicians become more aware of the mind-brain-body connection and psychiatrists as well and psychologists, any people working with humans? Well, you know, I've discussed this with many, many colleagues. As I cite in the book, in, in 1938, there was a very famous lecture given by another Hungarian Jewish physician at Harvard. His name was Soma Weiss. He came from Transylvania. And he is so revered that at Harvard to this day, there's a day named in his honor, a research day named after wow. him. And he gave this lecture to a medical school class. And the lecture was published in the Journal of the Medical Medical Association in 1940. And Soma Weiss said that emotional factors are as important in the causing of illness as physiological factors, as biological factors. And, mm. they, must let, and they must be at least as important in the treatment. Now, he said this. 80 years ago now, or 85 years ago now, when there was much less research than we have today. Now, despite the fact that they still honor his memory by a research day in his honor, a leading physician at Harvard told me four years ago that to talk about mind-body medicine at Harvard today is still to jeopardize your career. And this guy is... A psychiatrist is the head of a department at, at Harvard, and uh, you know that makes you know, no sense. And, and and so there's this tyranny of double-blind 
laboratory studies or double-blind studies, which is a completely false way of understanding human functioning and, 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 and science. There's the fear of physicians themselves of their own traumas and their own emotional states, yeah. which makes them very reluctant to, because through medical, medical training can be very heavy and even traumatic for a lot of people. We know this, you know, and, and so one way to deal with it is not to deal with it, just to focus mm -hmm. on the biological facts. That means let's ignore the emotions of our patients as well, because if we look into them, we might have to look into our own. Then there's the dominance of the pharmaceutical companies whose research, naturally enough, is focused on creating products that will reap for them a profit. Looking at stress and trauma, there's no profit in it. You know, and so it's a very, very difficult question. And I've discussed this with a lot of colleagues. You're in Texas. There's Dr. Bruce Perry, who's mm -hmm. a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist and a pediatrician, and he's the head of the uh, Houston Child Trauma Academy. And Bruce has written a number of seminal books, including The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, and most recently with Oprah, he wrote a best-selling book called What Happened to You, all about childhood trauma. And Bruce and I have discussed this, and he has the same experience, is that physicians are just so reluctant and 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 closed when it com comes to looking at this information, and so, and Bessel van der Kolk, whose book mm -hmm. "The Body Keeps the Scores," a perennial New York Times bestseller, he's had the same experience. So that what I'm saying is, there's tremendous resistance, and that resistance is not an intellectual one, because on intellectual grounds, the case that I'm making is very straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, this this resistance is emotional. You know, I think. I'm not talking about individual physicians here, I'm talking about medicine as an institution, is I think they're afraid to open up an area that they don't feel comfortable with. So how to overcome that? Well, you're doing it, I'm doing it. We just have to keep yeah. talking about this stuff. And there's a reason why these books are by by myself and Bessel and Bruce are bestsellers because the public is so hungry for this information, as I think your public is as well. So that I think... It's going to come from public pressure. Have you ever battled to shut your mind off at night when you want to sleep and then you kind of put your head on the pillow and your mind just goes crazy and all these thoughts are pumping up through your mind and your brain? I know that's happened to me and I have found that I have a new secret. And let me tell you what the secret is. In addition to mind management, I have been trying out Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. It's great for sleep and for promoting calmness and relaxation. What I found out is that the brains behind Magnesium Breakthrough have taken it to the next level with a product specifically designed for sleep. It's called Sleep Breakthrough and it's been a total game changer for me. Sleep Breakthrough is a delicious pre-bed drink that combines the power of magnesium with other natural ingredients like valerian root to help us fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and wake up feeling refreshed. Since I started using Sleep Breakthrough, I've been waking up feeling well-rested, energized, and ready to tackle the day ahead. I highly recommend giving Sleep Breakthrough a try. Visit sleepbreakthrough.com forward slash Dr. Leaf and order now. In addition to the discount you get by using the promo code DrLeaf10, they are always amazing gifts for the purchase. That's also why I love shopping at BioOptimizers. So go now to sleepbreakthrough.com forward slash DrLeaf to get your sleep breakthrough and find out this month's gift with the purchase. The link and details will be in the show notes.
Yeah, I tend to agree with you as you were talking. That's exactly why we have this wonderful medium now of podcasting and social media in the, in the sense that we can, people are, that from a grassroots up, people are challenging the current system because it's not working. It's not solving the problem. It's making things worse. And, and our instincts as humans is, are, is coming out. You know, you use the story in the book of the, the um, Saturday Night Live guy, Don- Donnell Hammond, and how he was, you, you give the, his whole story about how he yeah. was over-medicated and, you know, all kinds of the whole story and how he landed up with a psychiatrist who said, actually, it's your story. That's the important thing that you have to get back to. And, you know, that kind of summarizes, um, I'm just trying to find that doctor, he ended up going to Dr. Nabil Kotby and who spoke about the fact that it's a story and in that story you had no power. And yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that's kind of where we need to be able to, it's almost like we have to, we need the expertise of medicine but we need the expertise of understanding the, the link between the mind and how it impacts the brain and the body. Otherwise, how do we help someone? Can you talk a little bit about that Absolutely. story? Absolutely. So Daryl is a very well-known comedian. He, he had more appearances on Saturday Night Live than anybody else, I think. He was also had his substance use issues and mental health issues, and over the decades, he went to something like 30 or 40 psychiatrists, was given a whole lot of diagnoses and a whole range of medications. None of them made any difference at all until a psychiatrist finally said to him, I don't know call what you have as a disease, something happened to you, you know? And they all said, yeah, yeah, there's a story there. And in that story, I was the only one without any power because where it all began was tremendous abuse that he had endured in childhood. And nobody asked him about that until this one particular psychiatrist. 30 years later and real that's actually in vancouver in a few weeks i'll be leading a workshop with uh, an american colleague of mine whose name is lewis mel madrona and lewis is a part lakota american and he's uh, a physician and psychiatrist all about the power of narrative mm. and lewis has written a book about the importance of narrative so there's a whole new branch of medicine called narrative yeah. medicine where mm-hmm. people just Tell their stories. And telling their stories, they hear themselves, they actually get to understand themselves, and they get heard by others. And that act of getting in touch with yourself and having that witnessed and validated by others, that itself is healing. Exactly. You know, and indigenous traditions have always known this. Yeah. So for all the achievements of Western science, which again, we acknowledge and celebrate, if we only added the indigenous wisdom to it, which is all about context and relationship and story. So what if we what if we joined the technological insights and yeah. and um, accomplishments of Western medicine with that indigenous wisdom of connection, story, and belonging? We would have an incredible medical system. Oh my goodness! And we would have a we would have humanity that is starting to feel like they're human again. Uh, you know, you, you as you took explaining this, it goes back to my years in, in, in Africa where I had the privilege of seeing this kind of community focus. Mm. And I, I kind of did it and not the normal route of the sort of academic route. I, I ran a practice and did research, but I went into the field and I worked in every possible community I could within the South African, in my area. So I was working in the townships and worked in Rwanda and, and mm. I didn't have time to publish papers at that stage. I was learning and connecting and seeing how to help understand the mind and 
how to help people and seeing people in different circumstances. The point that I'm making is that the stories that people told me, that's where I feel that my education was really happening, was mm -hmm. by seeing in the communities in Africa how and, and in Rwanda, but mainly in Africa, how that the stories of their lives were informing the healing. And that's where a lot of the work I've since done has come from there. Now, you know, it's formally written up in books and doing research. But the point is, as you say, the story, the narrative, that is vital in this component. Speaking of South Africa, there was a very interesting study I ran across when I wrote a previous book of mine called When the Body Says No on the Mind-Body Connection. This is from South Africa. It showed that when black people leave their villages and go into the townships because they were seeking for jo seeking jobs and so on, mm -hmm. the rate of rheumatoid arthritis went up. Wow. In other words, when they left their communities in a sense of belonging, where their stories were heard and mm -hmm. shared, and where they had all these connections, and they went to the hopefully economically more promising situations in the cities, but all of a sudden they were more isolated, bereft of community and contact. The rate of inflammation in their in their joints and connective tissues increased. Mm. This is a South African study. Uh, wow, that's amazing. Several, several decades ago. Wow, oh, that's amazing. That's that's so fascinating. I'm definitely going to go and read that that study. I haven't read that study, so thank you for sharing that. But it just shows you what we've known for years. It's like we're coming full circle, and hopefully this full circle will actually close. That we start bringing this community focused, story based medicine back and move away moving away from just the biological not that you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it's basically combining the two looking at the whole mind brain body connection you know i'd love to i know you don't have much more time and and you'll have to do a part two and a part three because there's so many things to talk to you about but i'd love to just in the last few minutes we have together talk a little bit about parenting and children and and i'm specifically referring in your book to page 126 when you talk about childhood trauma so beautifully and effectively throughout your work, and you explain it so well, we don't want this to sound, I'm actually going to read your book. If that sounds like an indictment of parents, that's the furthest from my intention. At the risk of being overly repetitious, let me state again that parent blaming isn't only cruel and unfair, it's nonsensical. Suffice it for now to say that the quality of early Caregiving is heavily, even decisively determined by the societal context in which it takes place. And as you will see, children are increasingly set upon by an accumulation of potent influences, social, economic, and cultural, that overwhelm and in many ways subjugate the internal emotional apparatus to imperatives that have nothing to do with well-being. And if, then you, you offer on the other page, and then I'd love to open it up to you to sort of have as our last part of today's discussion, you talk about Newfield summing up what young ones need, and I'll just capture a couple of words here. Children sure. must feel an invitation to exist in our presence exactly the way they are. Beautiful. With that need in mind, the parent's primary task beyond providing for the child's survival requirements is to emanate a simple message to the child in word, deed, and most of all, energetic presence that he or she is precisely the person they love, welcome, and want. I'm going to stop there because I'll end up reading your whole book to them. And it, it's just so, so beautiful. And I just think I'd love you to talk around those concepts. Sure. Thank you. So as regards parent blaming, 
in our society, there's a real tendency to blame. So if mm -hmm. something's wrong, somebody's to blame. It's almost like a reflexive response to any kind of yeah. a challenge. And when you look at the fact that there's two facts that you can't escape. One is we already talked about it. A larger number of kids than ever before are in trouble. They're having anxiety, ADHD, depression, self-cutting, what they call oppositionality, uh, learning difficulties, cognitive problems, behavior issues. More and more of them are being medicated. This is a fact, okay? That's a fact number one. Fact number two is that it's indisputable, according to all the research, all the science, that what happens in the early environment in the family of origin has the largest impact on the development of the brain and of the personality. That's also true, which then may lead us to blame parents for the burgeoning epidemic of childhood disorders. And that blame is totally unscientific and, un, and, and un, inappropriate and cruel because parents are doing their best under very difficult circumstances. We were never meant to parent in isolated nuclear families. As a creatures, as a, as, as a species, we evolved over a million years, millions of years, living in small communities where all children lived around all kinds of adults, exactly. where children were with the parents the whole day, where they had multiple playmates of different ages, where they were out in nature, spontaneous free play, and where the whole community took care of the child. That's how we evolved as a species. Now, under the pressures of modern living, we've lost all that. And parents, and, and, and in the richest country in the world, the vast majority of people are two paychecks away from bankruptcy. Yeah. Which means that people are, are living under economic stress yeah. and all kinds of uncertainty. And that affects the development of the children. We're not blaming individual parents here. Furthermore, when parents are traumatized, as many people are, they unwittingly pass on their traumas to their children, just mm -hmm. like I did. I didn't mean to, but I did. So just to quote a great scientist, Dr. Jack Shonkoff at the Harvard Center on the Developing Child, he said that you can't say that parents are incredibly important in the lives of their children, yet if there's a problem, it has nothing to do with the parents. But the truth is, he says, parents don't raise their children in isolation from society. And that's that's why I insist on looking at the culture rather than blaming individual parents. That's the first point. The second point is that we talked about trauma and as being a wound. And children can be wounded in two ways. One is bad things happen to them that shouldn't have. I shouldn't have been given to a stranger, mm -hmm. ideally. And it, no, no child should be. Yeah. You know, no child should have to live through an earthquake. No child should be sexually or emotionally abused or physically hit. No child should have to live with a parent who's alcoholic or traumatized. Shouldn't, ideally. Not for their needs to be met. But there's another way you can wound kids, which is not just by bad things happening to them, but by the good things that should happen not happening. And this is where you're quoting my friend, the brilliant psychologist Gordon Neufeld, who talks about the irreducible needs of children. And the first, these are the irreducible sort of children, meaning that if you take these needs away, the child's development will be affected. And the first irreducible needs of the child is that loving, unconditionally accepting, absolutely secure attachment relationship with the parents. Mm -hmm. Now, the more there's a loving community around, the less stressed the parents are, 
the more the parents are able to provide that unconditional loving acceptance. Conversely, the more isolated and stressed they are for all their love of their children, the greater difficulty they'll have to make that child feel welcome just for who they are. And so if you look at our society, so few people are comfortable with who they are. So few people think their body is good enough looking, that mm. their tummy is not too big, or their shape of their face is not distorted, or that there's something wrong with them emotionally. So many people are brought up with a negative view of themselves. Why? Because our view of ourselves develops based on how we experience ourselves in relationship to our parents early on. And when they're stressed and then not capable of seeing us and hearing us and validating our emotions, then we don't get to trust ourselves and feel, we get to reject ourselves. And then we buy all these products and undergo all these procedures and try and achieve all these results and try and be nice and good and important just to just to compensate for a lack of self-acceptance. And this society is full of products and activities to substitute false acceptance and false self-importance for genuine, authentic self-esteem that can only come from a safe, accepting, unconditionally loving parenting environment. And again, I'm not talking here about how much parents love their kids. Mm -hmm. I know how much I love my kids. Mm -hmm. It was infinite. But I also know that as a workaholic doctor trying to justify my existence, yeah. I couldn't show up for them the way I needed to show up. And you talk you know, about that in your book. You're very vulnerable. Yeah. You talk about how yeah. you, I think it's your third son, you talk about battled and then your, when your wife was pregnant with, I think it was your third or your fourth child, That's I'm right. not sure. You do third. talk about this in the book. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying here is just to, you know, complete my response is that on the one hand, the early parenting environment is absolutely crucial. On one hand, on the second, on the other hand, parents can't be blamed. This is the culture. I mean, look, in the United States, 25% of women have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth. That means that's a massive abandonment of infants. Yeah. They can't help it because economically they must. But what does that do to the child? It Thank means you. it's an abandonment. And, and children make that mean that they're not worthy. Because who gets abandoned? I've, you know, I talked about that in my, in my own story. Another need of the child, an irreducible need, is the freedom to experience all their emotions. Now, our brains as human beings, as mammals, are wired to experience all kinds of emotions, from love to rage. These are normal emotions evoked when they're necessary. If I were to impinge on your boundaries, physically, emotionally, you should be angry with me as a way of protecting yourself, you know? So the child should be able to have the freedom to, to experience all the emotions programmed into them by nature. But in our society, so many parents are told, oh no, you have to control the child's emotions and behaviors. So children never get the sense of being accepted. And I'm not talking about permissive parenting. I'm not yeah. talking about allowing destructive behavior or exactly. aggressive behavior. I'm talking about seeing, recognizing, and validating the child's emotions. If we knew how to do that, a lot of people would grow up mentally and emotionally healthy. But we don't know how to do that. In fact, a lot of parenting advice 
is designed to suppress kids' authentic selves. And that leads to lifelong suffering. So glad you said that. And you, you know, the way you answered this question was just incredible. And I'm so glad you said that. And you've really encouraged me because I have a book coming out in a few months on how to help mm. parents help their children with managing emotions and their mind and mental health. And it's just, it's so important. You know, years well, I've been re- working in the field. So <laughs> thank you for your encouragement. <laughs> I hope I, I hope you send me a copy of your book. I will definitely send you a copy. You'll make, I'll make sure I'd love your input. So thank you so much. So Dr. Dr. Mate, I know you want to be called Gabor. I just want to say that this has been a privilege, a delight and a part one. And I hope that you'll come back and sorry about our technology. I hope you'll come back and share more of your wisdom because I don't believe we've even touched the tip of the iceberg. It's been incredible. Thank you for your work and thank you for your time. And really, I cannot wait to speak to you again. Well, likewise, I'm very happy to come back. So thank you for having me today and uh, all the best to you. Thank you so much. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.